The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. And now, Stacy is going to come read today's scripture. As we walk through 1 Peter, we're about halfway through the book right now. And uh, Peter, the name may ring a bell to you. It's, it is the Peter, the apostle, the disciple uh, who followed Jesus, who denied him three times. He actually wrote two letters. So he's not just in the narrative accounts of the gospel. He wrote first and second Peter in the 60s AD. And when he did that, when you read it, and you kind of can get this here, he was very quick, just like if you read Peter's personality, to say, what does this have to do with now? Like if you're the kind of person that's like, Tell him, okay, we're talking about this. What do I do tomorrow? What do I do when I leave these doors? What do I do on Monday? He was very quick to take theology and practice and make them seamless. And that's what we read here. We're reading that the Christians at that time who were very small and defenseless, that last week, this week, the week after, we're seeing a word that kind of repeats, be subject to, how do you submit? That in, a, in the Roman authority structure, what it meant to show that was a lot of our humility and where we bow the knee. How are we subject? How do we show who we really worship and why we really work really matters? And it couldn't matter more than today. And so, as always, and I, I mention this because every time we read a, a, a letter or something from the scripture, we can't just jump quickly to the, uh, the application. We have to first know, what, 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 what did the first century hearers read through this? And then we go, okay, then how does that translate to us as followers in 21st uh, century here in America? So we're going to look at this in two ways. And when I read this passage, I want you to listen to this. We're going to read a gracious thing, so a gracious thing, which is actually a phrase he uses, and then the grace we have. So a gracious thing, and then the grace we have. Hear this from 1 Peter 2, verses 18 to 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do, a good, do good and suffer for it when you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls." This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, you know, I don't know what your first job was. Um, I'd love to hear. Uh, if you're in your first job, welcome to working. Uh, if you need a job, let us know. Uh, and some of your kids like, 
uh, what's a job? You're like, that's why you're, you're with your parents or you're getting the food you're getting. Um, but I remember my first job when I was in um, Dallas, Texas. I was um, 12 at the time. I was 13. I know. You're like, wait a minute. This, that is, I, isn't there, aren't there laws? Against? Yes. You're about to hear some, some parts of that. Uh, I was handing out flyers for a fast food fried chicken restaurant in Dallas. And um, it was funny. That was back when you go like door to door and put a flyer either in a mailbox or in their door frame or like in their you know, door handle or something like that. And uh, when I, <laughs> the place I was working at, the, the, I guess the cook, uh, left for some reason. I don't even know why. And um, they were looking around, and my mom told me that this is what I said, too, that um, they were like, what are we going to do? And then I looked at them, and I go, I-, I can cook stuff in the microwave. I got this. And they were like, and my mom was like, what are you stop it. And, and they were like, hey, sure. <laughs> they took me up on it. Uh, at 13, yes, again, uh, 13, I was stuck in it in the back of a, I know you're like, I'm so glad I didn't eat there, but the, <laughs> a fried chicken restaurant. So I was literally the one like doing the chicken in the flour, you know, dropping them in the fryers. Like I was on a slicer, you know, like you see at a deli, like making coleslaw. Yeah, a 13-year-old kid with one of those things is not a good idea. I have all my fingers, but somehow. Um, the worst part of that job was at the end of the day when we shut down and I had to clean out all the fryers. So I don't know if you go to like Five Guys or places like that and you see them like drop those baskets in, right? When they pull them up, after a whole day of that, it is just like tar at the bottom of that thing. And I had to drain them and then they would get clogged up and I have to stick my arm down in it and like like clean out the holes and the tubes and I, man, and I was carrying out these buckets of oil just reeked out to the back alley and just throwing them in, uh, not in the alley. It's not like it was like medieval times, like throwing, <laughs> but I was throwing them in like a big, you know, container. And man, that, that, that was a job and a half. Um, and I, I wish now, you know, and I don't know how much I would have taken in, how much I would have learned, like, what does it mean? How in the world did that connect to me being a follower of Jesus? I became a Christian when I was around 12, uh, but I still probably wouldn't have thought that. I still think, you know, we ask that question, what in the world does this have to do with that? And that's the constant question, like my work in school, my work in a cubicle, my work at home with my children, my work in a, in a, a classroom. I mean, you could, it, work it goes abroad, Right. But how in the world does it connect to who we are as followers of Christ? You know, uh, Martin Luther, uh, who was one of the reformers uh, back in the day, maybe it been the one you heard, he nailed the 95 theses to the door. He had a, he had a saying, he said, we need to be profane Christians. Uh, we need to be profane. And what he meant by that was not the word profane that we think of. The word profane in Latin was profundus. It meant out of the church into the marketplace. It meant that we need to begin carrying what we know in here to attach in every way what it means to live and work in every space that we go into. You know, this passage begins with servants. <laughs> it begins with servants or slaves. And when we read that, for American Christians, particularly uh, in this century and who've 
dealt with so much from the 17th, 18th century. This is very different than the slavery we're used to. The slavery that we are used to was very race-based. It was based on kidnapping. It was based on an economy that you could not leave or get out of. First century slavery in Rome was something that was very different. It wasn't race-based. It was something you could actually grow in, hold positions in. In fact, a third of the population of all of the Roman Empire was actually slaves, many of which held positions, and and some believe that Peter was speaking particularly to household slaves who could even be well-educated as doctors, engineers, and other such positions. And often how wherever your master was in terms of society, there went your, you as a slave. So if your master was somebody who was of high notoriety or position, you as a slave would hold the same. You would have the same status and character went. But at the same time, the, the, what connects here is the fact that they were still slaves. They had very minimal rights, even though they could leave, but are often looked at as possessions. In fact, Aristotle said this once about slaves. He said that slaves were like cattle and that it was almost impossible to mistreat them because they were possessions, not people. But one of the things that's profound about what is happening in this passage, when Peter begins, he says, as a gracious thing in verse 19 and 20, he's trying to get them to see what is their position? Who are they? that they're more than possessions. In fact, the, the, the point that even Peter addresses slaves in this, and not even the masters, which he is by doing this as the undercurrent, he's actually holding them up in honor. He's actually giving them notoriety. He's actually saying, you're not just a possession, you're a person. And you have been given this personhood, even not only as who you are, but in connection to who Jesus is. As, and that's what's amazing about this passage. It doesn't just say, here's be servants, be subject. It actually moves into who is Jesus as the ultimate servant. That the reflection of who they are as slaves in that time was to reflect who Jesus is and that their dignity would be upheld, that they aren't possessions, they are people. And a gracious thing, as it says twice, and it almost bookends this passage, is to say, what what counts with God? In fact, I want to kind of almost throw that question back to us, is what actually counts with, what do you think God counts towards in your work? When he sees you at work and he knows you're at work, what do you think he counts? You think it's like sharing a verse with a coworker or someone? Is it simply making things add up? Is it being good in your work? I would say it's a very comprehensive understanding of that. That what Peter's trying to get us to understand is what God counts is how you handle the good of the gospel up underneath what is unjust within the workplace. And what this passage is not saying, and I want to say this up front because I think it's really important, is three major things. One, this is not an endorsement of slavery at all. In fact, in, in, in years past, some of these passages have said, oh, well, 
it's an endorsement or it's a blessing or it's maybe silent. No, no, no. This is a very different addressing of what does it mean to work as a one-third of people who actually entered into slavery voluntarily sometimes to have work, whereas in American slavery, that was not the case. But this is not an endorsement of slavery by the Bible or anyone else. Second, if there's something that someone who is above us in authority speaks against that is in contrary to God's word and his authority, this passage and other ones, we actually saw this last week, the same exact thing. When it talked about government, is that we fear God and honor the emperor. We don't fear the emperor and honor God. We fear God. We listen to his words first, just as it says here. Be mindful of God, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God first, then we obey. If anything is in contrary to that, we are called to disobey and obey the ultimate voice. And third, I think it's really huge, because it does mention a line in here, in verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? I think I need to actually say, this is not endorsing or okay that if you're in an abusive situation. This is not condoning it. It's not saying stay in it. This is a very different understanding of what they were as slaves than being in a place where, where, and they had less agency than we do in our workplace. But what it is getting at is how do we work? How do we enter into those places and get up underneath where sin has permeated, where work is affected by it? How do we manage ourselves at work? So servants, be subject. And actually the Greek of being subject is the same word. And you'll see this theme throughout as Peter kind of takes it and practically uh, seamlessly does this, is actually to tell yourself to be subject. So it's actually a voluntary subjection. It's telling yourself to be subject over and over and over. It means that even when you're in a place and a posture where the job may not be what you want. There may be things about it you don't like that he's saying that we are called to speak to ourselves to bend the knee, to be subject in places that we wouldn't want to be. And even for us who have agent, a lot more agency to get in and out of jobs, that means a lot. <laughs> that means a lot for us. See, Rome had what was called household codes. These codes that would organize and have certain codes for relational things, and you kind of see these, the Bible is actually taking that and rewriting them. So why it starts with governing bodies and then moves to slavery and, and, and servants, and in the next weeks we'll see in the family and with children even, is to say, how are we supposed to work and live with the good news of the gospel treated not like possessions but people to enter in that a gracious thing means that what does God credit and he says it twice he says for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly and then it says for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure but if when you do good and suffer for it you endure this is a gracious thing what does God count He counts the faithfulness of doing the good and carrying the good news into our work regardless of whether the work is considered valuable or good on this earth. 
because he counts it as good. He considers it good. See, one thing we need to remember is that work is not sin. (laughs) Work is not sinful. In fact, there's a full story of the Bible that Peter's picking up on. It's creation, fall, when sin enters in. Redemption, Jesus comes and redeems. And glory, when sin is all gone. But we have to remember that, that work didn't start when sin came. Work actually started when creation happened. God himself as the great creator. And then gives man and woman creation to make and work and live. And then sin enters in. And then the thorns and thistles come. See, the Romans often thought anything material is just base. It's awful. Anything in this life that's material or tangible, it's just, ugh. And I think somewhere that seeped into our own idea and culture. That how does out there connect to here? Like when I'm, uh, this happened, I've told some of you these stories. Like when I'm on a plane or I'm in a golf cart or I'm with somebody that doesn't know me very well and they're like, oh, you're a pastor. They're like, "Mm," immediately. Like, so I either get, especially on a plane, I either get the person like immediately confessing all sorts of things or... Or they like take their book and their AirPods going a lot quicker, right? But I think some reason we have that is not because of me, but because what it represents that we still have this sacred secular divide. Like, oh, I can't say these things on the golf course as a pastor sitting next to me. Well, hey, guess what? I've probably said very similar things and probably will today. Very colorful. It's golf. But why do we do that? There's actually a, there's actually a guy named Simon of Stylites. He was an elder. I mean, this is like centuries and centuries ago. This guy started building platforms. We're talking way back in the day. He, and he was, in order to show his separation from the world, he began building platforms for himself. And he just kept building them higher and higher. As if to say, there's the world down there and then I'm getting closer to God. But we've done that with our work. And the Bible says, no, 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 we're whole people. We haven't divided. He doesn't divide that here. Listen to what Peter's saying. He doesn't say, oh, there's that. He says, doing good in the face of you, where sin has entered in. Do you know God loves you? Not just whether it's tied to church or not. God actually likes what you do. God loves that you work. Christianity isn't just prayer closets and Bible studies. The the Genesis account of creation begins with them cultivating the garden, working tangibly with their hands. It's getting into that. In fact, the distinction between that is what, what messes it all up. And see, this is where it comes in, enduring through injustice, our workspaces. How do we make sense of the curse of sin in those workspaces, getting in there. Because you need to understand as well as I do, our work is valuable even if it's not valued. It, it's valuable even if it's not valued. It's incredibly valuable. I, I, I can't remember when this was. It was about a year ago when we just saw the effects of, uh, I guess it was COVID or, or just the work, you know, everything from slowing down from, you know, 
things, manufacturing plants, like other things. I heard a, a, a paint plant burned down in the East Coast. It affected like seven states. I mean, it just that kind of stuff, you know. Well, I remember there was, a, there was several weeks where we pushed our trash to the corner. It's supposed to be picked up, you know, on Wednesday or Thursday or whatever. Never came. And everybody just kept bringing their stuff to the curb. And just down at the curb, it kept piling up. And we kept thinking, what's going on? Well, there was a shortage of people who were able to drive. And, and the needs were just too much. And oftentimes, those are the jobs that we look at and we go to other people around us and, and kind of say, well, you need to get a job, you need to work, so you don't have the... Why do we put those jobs in that position? Now, this is not a, like, everybody's great job. It is. But the Bible's saying to us, the, the, the do-what-you-love idea of work has permeated our culture so much that it's actually tainted our ability to to actually care for a lot of this world and work well. We have so much agency to say, I don't want to do that job. In fact, now there's so many people wanting to hire for jobs that we may not want to have, and yet they need people for, because we are so, we're so good at saying, mm, do what you love. And how that's corroded the idea of we're, what Peter's saying is we're to love what we do. The, the whole idea of the Bible is to love, to love what we do. It doesn't matter what it is, that you're to love what you do. When I'm carrying out awful, uh, nasty oil buckets, how am I supposed to love that? Well, here, here's how. Let's talk about the internal and external struggle of the curse. Think about this. The thorns and thistles, how has it impacted us? That our insides are always tired. We're just tired. Some of you may be sitting here like, I am so tired, and maybe you're like, I got a good night's sleep, and my insides are just exhausted. I would raise my hand as one of those. So exhausted. That's part of this curse. The high of completing work, that high we get because we go to work as, as that master and say, oh, it'll give back to us, and it does, but it's never satisfied, right? So you have to go back to it. We go back to it, to complete, and it never seems to remain full. It, it, the reward is so transactional. It's something it gives back to us. It's easy, probably one of the easiest places for us to go and get somewhat satisfaction. And yet, that's why so many of us struggle as students, as workers, as parents, as teachers, as friends, because it is transactional. It's not relational. And yet we look to it that way, to give back to us in a way that we think will fulfill us, and it won't. And, and that's just the internal struggle. Let's think about the external, the people you work with, the personalities you go, God, I cannot believe I have to go sit next to so-and-so again. This kid, it's in my class. I cannot stand them. The authority, whether it's somebody, no matter what that person looks like, the authority over you, they're just like, this person just doesn't know what they're doing. It always seems like work just fights back, and because it does. I remember reading uh, Andre Agassi, the famous tennis player, American tennis player, his book years ago. The very first lines of his book on tennis, I'm not ruining it for you, just so you know, 
He says, I hate tennis. <laughs> I hate tennis. And the more you read and listen to what he's saying, he's saying it's because tennis was his master. He was so good at it, and yet it was his master. Do you hear what Peter's getting at? Be subject to your masters. Why? Because who is your ultimate master? He says, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. How do you actually love what you do and not just find anything that's do what you love? You love what you do because you know the one that loves you, that values you more than your work and so much so that it can drive you to it. Because that's what, what gets to the places to, for us to become masters of our craft rather than whatever we work at master us. We're called to be masters of our craft. Whether you're dropping fry buckets whether you're in an office doing spreadsheets, you are called as a student, as a stay-at-home mom or dad, to be a master of your craft, to show that subduing, that there is a curse and that you're supposed to speak into it. But here's the thing, you and I can't reverse the curse. And so why, where does Peter go next? Beautifully, in verse 21, he says, for to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, okay, I'm just going to say this outright. <laughs> when it says follow an example, that's one thing in the Bible. You're like, okay, get on a tread. Like we're we're going to try and follow this. But when it says follow Jesus' example, that's where many of us are like, okay, it's Jesus. <laughs> like, how do I follow his example? What, what in the world can I do? It actually is saying to follow his, to imitate, to step into. There's actually an imprint. It's an outline. It's almost like on the beach when you're walking and you see where someone walked before. It's you stepping in each of those prints and going down. Jesus is called to be an example for us. Practically, This is to get into those spaces. And Peter is about to get really practical, and I'm going to try and, Lord willing, flesh some of this out for us. Because he says first that he committed no sin. Okay, here we go. He committed no sin. So there you go. Let's close in prayer. Commit no sin in your work. I mean, how do you do that? We do that by acknowledging that there is sin. It's not that you go into your work and you're perfect. But we go into our work aware of that sin isn't just in here. Whatever you confess, and you may do this in, during the confession time, and, 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 and that's okay. It happens often. I think maybe we confess the one, two, or three things that we kind of put in rotation when we come to confession. But when we leave here, I, I wonder how often we actually look into our jobs with the same confession. That whatever we're working on, that we see, hey, sin has permeated this. Whether it's sin, because sin isn't a neutral thing. It, it gets into everything. It, it, it corrupts your flow of work, the dignity of your coworkers, your reputation, the, the way things are outputted. The, I mean, it is in all of it. The question is, how are we aware of addressing it and attacking it? because we know that's what we've been called to. That is what these slaves are being called to, to address the sin through what people saw as their lower position. Peter says, no, no, no. 
And imagine that. He not only addresses them as persons, but he connects their actual being servants to the true servant that is Jesus. So none of us can take ourselves out of that. We've been put in that position so that we can see it, addressing and attacking it. And listen to what he says. He says in verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. What he said. What do you say at work? Is there congruence between who you really are and what you speak? Just as I joked about the guy at the golf course, like, hey, is there the same there as it is here? <laughs> or who you are? You're not the different person. Is it, are you congruent? Do people trust you? Are your words flighty, hollow? Un, uh, 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 are, are they unreliable? Unable to follow through? Uh, a woman named Dorothy Sayers, who is an incredible thinker, wrote a work called Why Work? Um, <clears throat> and she said this about that kind of issue, and she was speaking to why the church and being in the church and outside the church looks so irreconcilable. She said this, she said, a worker must be able to serve God in his work, and the work itself, itself must be accepted and respected as the medium of divine creation. And she used this illustration of a carpenter in the church. She said, the church intelligent carpenter is simply not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisurely hours and then come to church on Sundays. That is there an actual overlap of the good news translating into the good of what you're doing? Is it being caught? Is it being translated? And Jesus, not only that, there, after he spoke, there was no retaliation. Verse 23, he reviled, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Do you speak truth or tear down? Simply put, it is very easy in our workplaces that if somebody says something to us, we capture it. And we can passive aggressively, aggressively try and work our way to put them back down or to work around it or to put ourselves just above them by not even talking to them, but putting ourselves in a position to distance, to retaliate, to, to climb in order to get over someone else. But how in this passage is saying you enter into that? That he was reviled and he didn't revile in return. When suffered, he didn't. Threatened, what did he do? Continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Who is the one who judges justly? Most justly, it is God. What is the engine by which you're able to actually do your work and do it faithfully? It's one who actually judges your work. Who says ultimately, well done, my good and faithful servant. And here's the reason why. I love how Peter does this. It's almost like soil and topsoil. You see the, the stuff on top, and then down below, it's where the roots start to go, but where it gets really deep is these last two verses, and he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like lost sheep, but now return to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. None of us can be in the example of Jesus if we don't have Jesus leading us as the ultimate one to know that we can't reverse the curse. 
There has only been one to do that. And here's what's incredible about this table. This table really fleshes out those last two verses. Because it says something interesting. Why, why would Peter say, the one who died on a tree? I mean, he could have said cross. I mean, he knew what a cross was. He'd mentioned the cross before. He says it in other places. Why a tree? Because the curse, and it says this in Deuteronomy, an Old Testament book, it's just lists of laws. It says, those who are hung on a tree are cursed and cursed by the law. In other words, that whoever's put on that tree receives the curses for all the sin. And it is not you and I that bear it. What does it say? It says, he himself bore our sins on in his body on the tree. You know as well as I do, any of the sins that you confessed earlier in confession can make you feel so heavy inside. Think about that one thing. And yet think about Jesus bearing every sin. So much so that he bears even the weight of our trying to reverse the curse that he takes on the curse himself. So that we might, what is it says, die to sin and live to righteousness. That sin no longer has the authority, the masterhood that it had before. So that we are free to live in righteousness, live towards the credit we have. That's what righteousness means. You're not zero, you're built up. You know, today is, and I'm going to finish here, is a, a Sunday that many of us may not recognize, but it's called Ascension Sunday. We celebrate Easter when Jesus rose from the dead, but Ascension Sunday is a Sunday we celebrate that Jesus actually ascended into heaven. We say it in the Apostles' Creed. And I don't think we think about this much, but Jesus, when he ascended into heaven and is sitting right now at the hand of God, he's actually in bodily form that the curses he took, the sins he bore, he, he took those on, died, rose again, and sits bodily for us in all the tangible ways, all the ways that, that we think sacred, sacred secular, there's a divine, uh-uh. Jesus is our advocate in bodily form right now. So that when we approach this table, you're approaching the one who's given his body and blood both now and forever that you're tasting the one who reversed the curse so that you're free to live in righteousness in him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together.